0: hi welcome to BCI cattle chat i'm brad white happy to have you with us today and happy to have a good crew here in the studio morning dustin good morning brian good morning bob hey guys Bob forgot where he was it's been a few weeks without (laughs) bob in the studio and he kind of forgot where he was but we got him back now so hey it's great to have you listening with us and As always, if you're interested in finding out more about some of the research or other things that we do, you can sign up for our newsletter and you can just go to our website and sign up there. Or if you'd like to hear more in-depth discussions, we have the Bovine Science with BCI podcast. And today we're going to get to talk a little bit about some of the issues that are going on. Bob, you've done some research on BVD, bovine viral diarrhea. We'll talk a little bit about that. Dustin's got some economic questions for us, and we'll talk a little bit about one of the frustrations at this time of year flies and how we might deal with those. Before we get into those, one of the other issues that you may battle at this time of year is overproduction in the garden or vegetables or having too much. So, the obvious example is zucchini and zucchini <laughs> bread. Yes. Right? So what else do you do when your garden is overproductive?
1: Right, so I, I can't, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to tell a funny story. So when I was growing up.
0: I expected nothing less. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you're back. I'm,
1: I'm glad to be back. <laughs> now, when I was growing up, you know, we lived in a small town and you never locked your doors or anything when you were parking your car downtown going into the stores, except this time of year. My mother would lock the car doors because if you didn't, someone would leave a sack of zucchini <laughs> in, the, in the car. And it's like, oh, I knew you wanted some zucchini. It's like, no, we don't. <laughs>
0: So, so do you guys have an answer for overproduction and what you're going to do with it? Because Bob just ignored the question.
2: I did. Yeah, I mean, we I, we haven't had a garden for a few years, just because summertime's crazy for us. But we have a food dehydrator, and we have a, we've done some canning in the past too. I had a friend years ago that taught me how to make homemade pickles, and we just kind of go from there. But I don't have a pressure cooker, so I'm limited to vegetables. But I can I can do both of those.
0: My wife makes some homemade, like really spicy pickles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, That is a good use for cucumbers. Yeah. Basically, kind of what Bob was
3: hinting at or getting at, we just give it away. To yeah, you're the
0: person who puts it in the cars. <laughs> so you're I don't the quite go that side. far, but uh... yeah, I'm locking my car door around uh, <laughs> Dustin also. Yeah, that's, where, that's the way Dustin handles it. So, excellent. Well, hopefully your garden has been productive this year. And as we, as we move into fall, we start thinking about some things relative to cattle health and one of the issues that comes up and Bob this has come up a couple different times and BVD or bovine viral diarrhea I know you've done some research on but one of the questions as we were discussing getting ready to come on the show was is BVD common or uncommon and are there places that it's more common
1: yeah, those are all good questions. BVD is, is a viral disease that affects cattle, and it has a few interesting characteristics. that makes it a little bit different than some other viral diseases. One is that it the main source are these persistently or PI-infected cattle, and those are calves that were infected during pregnancy, so while they were a fetus, they were infected, and they weren't aborted, because many times if a fetus is infected with a virus, it, it will abort. Well, occasionally with BVD, they won't. And so then they're born, and they happen to be then persistently infected and they release a lot of virus throughout
0: their life. So basically that virus came in when their immune system was forming and they don't recognize it as foreign. So then that virus produces and makes a lot. So as we think about like a spring calving herd, if we had some of those persistently infected calves that were born this spring, then by the time we work around the fall of this year, They may have made new persistently infected calves for last year yeah so how frequent and so this the way you're describing it it starts at the cow calf herd exactly so how many cow calf herds across the country are infected or have to deal with this
1: well our best estimate is around eight percent or so you know right in that range and as far as we can tell and we don't have a perfect map of all the distribution it seems to be pretty evenly distributed across the country. There's not any one hotspot necessarily that's way more than 8% that we know of. And so that's kind of, so another way to look at it is as a veterinarian, I might have a couple hundred clients. That means that most of my clients do not have a persistently infected calf in their herd causing problems, but a dozen or so of my clients might, you know, so it is common enough that it does deserve attention, but a lot of herds don't
2: have any. And just to clarify, you said eight percent of herds, but when you get into those herds that have that PI calf, then the prevalence is is high, right? right. With, within the herd, that prevalence becomes higher. If you especially if you don't have any control or surveillance in place. Exactly, it's not an even distribution. So one of the things we we
1: think that around three out of a thousand. Weaned calves that kind of go into the marketplace as after weaning, about three out of a thousand might be PIs, but it's not evenly distributed three out of every thousand calves. It's zero from 92% of the herds, and it's five or 10 or 15% out of that smaller group of herds where we see it. And so it, and, and again, as a veterinarian and as a producer, that's the way you're going to see it. It's not a small problem, you know, evenly distributed among all herds. It is a zero problem in many herds and a pretty significant problem in others.
0: So when you say problem and and staying with the cow-calf herd, if I have, you talked about the the dangers of having a persistently infected calf, what are the impacts to my herd itself? Does it impact reproduction? Does it impact calf health? What does it hit? Yeah. And, And that's another
1: interesting thing about BVD. It actually has a couple of ways that it acts one of course is the the reproductive aspect i already said that a lot of times if bvd infects the fetus it will abort the fetus so we can have abortion losses also another thing that it does is it suppresses the immune system and so for the pi calf actually most pi calves don't make it to weaning and by most i mean over 50 percent don't make it to weaning but a fair number do and they can continue to shed the virus and cause problems down the line and when they shed to their herd mates that aren't PI, it will suppress those herd mates immune system for a few days to a week or more. And during that time frame, those calves are very susceptible to respiratory disease, other problems and things like that. So yes, it causes reproductive problems in the cows, but it can also cause a wide range of diseases in the calves because
2: of this immune suppression. Well, and the obvious one is it does cause diarrhea right? It's bovine viral diarrhea virus, but it's not, but but it's not the most common presentation of the disease, right? Right. And it's unfortunate that that's in its name because
1: yes, you can see diarrhea in BVD infected calves, but not commonly. It's much more likely to be other syndromes, respiratory tract, other problems.
0: Okay. What do I do? How do I find it? How do I control it? If I've got those PI calves in my herd, what's my plan of attack?
1: Okay. So, one thing is we have fairly effective vaccines, particularly protecting against that abortion-causing aspect of the disease. So a well-vaccinated herd focusing on you know getting the heifers vaccinated well before their first breeding season and then annual boosters or, or so in the cows, that becomes a, an important part of it. That's not always 100% effective because these little PI calves can shed so much virus. They can overcome a vaccination program in some of the cows in the herd. So in herds where we suspect BVD, so if you have a herd that has a great breed up and no calf health issues, I'll bet you don't have a PI calf in your herd. If you have big problems, breed up abortions particularly, and some calf sickness issues, I test some of those calves, uh, any calf that dies, any calf that's sick, to look for those PI calves because PI calves will be overrepresented in sick and dead calves. So that's a logical place to go looking for it. So we have pretty good diagnostic tests. That are pretty good at finding those calves, particularly if they have other evidence that BVD could be circulating in the herd. So combine vaccination with diagnostic workup of sick cows, aborted cow, uh, sick calves, aborted cows, those types of things.
0: So it's only an issue in eight percent of the herds, and this would be a great instance to talk with your veterinarian, work through the process. The other resource that I would highlight is you've done a great job of creating bvd consult c-o-n-s-u-l-t so we'll put a link in the show notes and you can actually go on there and work your way through think the process of i think i might have bvd or i have bvd and what are my options for dealing with it because it's broader than just i'm going to vaccinate diagnostic tests because there are choices there that you have to make along the way and which animals and when
2: well and, and i think too, thinking you'd ask the question what do you do with them you know and that's that's kind of it It's a little bit of a conundrum within the industry. You know, if you find them, you certainly shouldn't be selling them to other people. There really aren't food safety issues with those animals, but, you know, it's kind of you need to kind of think about how, if you find it in your herd, what's your long-term management strategy before you really invest in testing a significant percentage of the herd. Great point, Brian.
0: And you're talking there specifically about those persistently infected calves because they do not get better. They do not change over time so you do not want to sell those to someone else because they're going to be shedding virus throughout their lives so a lot of great information there we'll put a link to the bvd consult in the show notes and it's got a lot of information there as well dustin we're going to shift gears and wanted to find out i know you have been traveling quite a bit recently and working on your center for animal health and thinking about north america so i know you've got some north american questions hopefully centered in kansas for my benefit
3: centered Kansas is center of North America, roughly, right? <laughs> so we're centered in Kansas. <laughs> so yeah, I was in Canada a couple weeks ago for just a professional ag econ conference. And so as I was thinking about questions for the week, I thought, you know, I don't know a lot about Canada or Mexico's cattle production. So let's, let's take a little deeper dive. So talk about imports, we can talk about exports, we can talk about production, consumption. So we'll start with just consumer demand or per capita consumption. So in reference, Couple weeks back, a few weeks back, we talked about the U.S. We said roughly the per capita consumption for beef was, was it
2: 120 pounds.
0: Eighty.
3: No, you weren't here, but you might have. You. You, you might have a better guess. Be, <laughs> guess. <Yeah. laughs> obviously, Brian and I have no memory. Yeah. yeah.
1: Let's see. 45 pounds.
3: It's pretty close. It was like 57, 58 ish. Okay. So that's just in reference. What do you think Canada is Canadian beef
1: consumption? Oh, well, they're just like us. They're just north of the border. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say just a little bit lower. So I'm gonna go with my forty-five.
0: Okay. It's higher. Six
1: sixty-two. It's cold up there, so they eat more beef. I'll say forty. It's thirty-nine
3: point seven. Oh, you Brian, those guys yes. to catch Brian up? wins. <laughs> Brian got a point for that one. See, I can play this game too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about Mexico? Mexican beef consumption per capita consumption. I'm gonna okay.
1: say.
2: I'll go 35.
1: I'm going to go same as Canada, so 38. Is that what you said? 39.7. 39.7, okay.
3: 43. Point, Brian. Ooh. 32.6, a little Uh, lower. Okay.
1: Brian's running away
3: with this. (laughs) So now let's talk about just beef cows. So 2023, January 1, I think we had about 28, 29, or about 29 million head here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. What about Canada?
1: I'm going to say 6 million head. I was going
3: to say 3. I'll say 10. 3.56. Oh, wow. So a
1: little bit smaller than I thought. I mean, maybe it was a lot
3: smaller than I would have ever guessed. And,
1: you know, but the interesting, I mean, I've been to Ontario. They've got a fair number of cows. I've been to Saskatchewan, Alberta. they got a fair number of cows. But probably within driving distance of the U.S. border, and I saw them. So <laughs> maybe I saw all 3 million.
3: <laughs> what about Mexico?
1: I wouldn't
2: have had a clue on this one. All right. Let's go. I'm going to go. Eight million again. Hey, I was gonna, I was gonna split the difference. I'll say seven, seven million. Right, I'm gonna
0: go about three again. It's right at
2: eight, just a hair over. Okay. So you oh. got a point. You got a
3: point. Ryan's got two points. So you guys want to talk about imports, exports, beef, veal, live mm-hmm. animals? Give us one yeah. more. We got yeah. a uh, to uh, catch up with Ryan. <laughs> so let's talk. Let's talk exports. So when we export beef, call it beef and veal exports, what percent of our total exports. So we we export let's say just, you know, let's say 15%, 12%. Of that 12%, how much goes to Canada, how much of that goes to Mexico?
2: Oh. I'm going to say put you want the combined number just or in each, each country in the So individual. like I know that our leading
1: <clears throat> export buyers are are in Asia. Yeah. But Canada and Mexico fall pretty high up there. So I'm going to say 20% to Mexico and 15% to Canada.
2: Oh, it's, I, I think Bob's in the ballpark. I'll actually switch it. I'll say 20% to Canada and 15% to Mexico.
0: 12% to Canada and 17% to Mexico.
3: It's 8% to Canada
0: and 8% to Mexico. Oh, oh, wow! wow. Yeah. Okay. So eh. so none of us. So you get <laughs> like a half point. a point. I got, yeah. I got four points on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll keep score for you, Dustin. <laughs>
3: According to Brad's math, he wins. (laughs) But the reason I wanted to bring up Canada and Mexico is they're such big trading partners Mm -hmm. for agricultural products in addition to beef and other livestock animals. And we actually import a fair number of live animals as well, both from Mexico and Canada, primarily all of our feeders Mm -hmm. we are importing. They're coming from Mexico and then slaughter animals are coming from Canada.
0: Yeah, and I th- and I think important to keep in mind some of those import exports, but it's it's good to get a feel for what some of those different markets are—not just cow production, but as far as the consumption per capita consumption and the folks there. So it's it's a interesting perspective. Thanks, Dustin, for sharing that with us. As we think about, I mentioned at the top, it's it, it gets hot. We get to the end of the year, and we talked in the spring about fly control, fly control mechanisms, and you can listen back if you want to listen to that episode where we dove in it's a little bit different at this time of year where we may have already implemented either fly tags or pour on in the spring and we come to the fall and this year and i was telling you guys before we got on so in our barn we've got some flies and on our cattle we've got some flies and just thinking through what do i do now right i've already done some fly control stuff do i do a premise spray do i spray the cattle how do I try to control those flies in those different situations?
2: I think the biggest thing is just the. I guess the maybe the first thing is recognize that not all flies are the same, right? And we kind of we I think we've had this discussion in the past where you know there's different there's different types of flies and they the the when you think about control the biggest thing is you have to control the flies where they are and so we talk about horn flies, they spend most of their time on the cattle. So targeting control measures that target horn flies need to target on the cattle and things like stable flies or house flies will spend most of their time off the cattle. And so then we can, if we have, if our fly problem is primarily stable flies, then we would want to, con- the premise control may work better for that population because
0: they spend a lot of time in the environment. And those stable flies look like house flies. They're a little bit bigger than the horn flies. The horn flies are on the cattle. They still look like flies, but they're a little bit smaller. So Bob, when do I decide I need to implement a treatment or not? So if I've got calves or cows and they almost all have some flies at this time of year, but there's a threshold that makes me wonder when, when do I need to treat them? Because those flies can be irritating to all of us Mm -hmm. but how do I know when well and
1: and I wish I had an answer that I was certain was right Uh, some of the research would say you start to see noticeable economic losses when you get to two or three hundred flies of corn flies per cow which is a moderate load because they can have more than that but it's not just a few that's probably the best answer we've got because we can we can find some differences in you know weaning weight and those kinds of things the other thing is just watching the cattle behavior how much time are they spending trying to avoid flies are they are they not grazing because they're bunched up trying to deal with the flies then maybe fly control makes sense so watch the cattle and I don't well, I guess kind of estimate how many flies are on there. Is it 50 or is it 300? And that's the kind of estimate you're, you're going for. They're
0: hard to count because they're I'm moving uh, around all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to spend all evening out there.
1: How would you like to be the grad student that actually did that? <laughs> kind of but, but meaning that a moderate to heavy load probably deserves some attention as far as, and if you already did some sort of, implement implemented some fly control, such as ear tags, Well, it's pretty obvious that the ear tags are no longer providing the control that you need. So I would remove those ear tags and I would think about some spot treatments to get us through the the last part of the summer here while fly numbers are still high.
0: Okay, I'm gonna pin you down on spot treatments before we go to the next question. So when you say spot treatment, are you talking can, can i treat just a few cattle can i use a little bit less dose and just kind of because i can put some good, of the spray good in the in a jug and just spray yep. and hope for the best
1: i would recommend basically you're going know, to treat all the cattle and you could use again something that's remote like a dust bag or cattle oiler or you could run them through the chute and do a back spray you know a, a pour on or a, a spray or something like that but i would treat all of them which is one of the reasons we don't want to do that. I mean, it's August and it's not fun to get gather cattle and do. And so you you have to think through what, what are your options? And again, some, maybe a, a, again, something like a dust bag or cattle oiler to finish out the summer might be useful. Think about it at least.
0: But exposure to, and the the point I want to bring back up, you you talked about if the fly tags are in and the cattle have a lot of flies, you said take them out, and you said that because why?
1: Well, they're obviously not effective. Because the way that the fly
0: tags... If they're not effective, they're not harming anything. I don't have to take them out. Why would I take them out? Oh, excellent. There you go. Brian, take it.
2: Yes, I'm dying over here. (laughs) Uh, Because Bob said it, and, you know, you talk about the decisions about whether to treat or not, and the reasons to treat are the fly avoidance behavior affects production, right? So that's the, that's the why, but the why we might not treat our, or Bob mentioned logistically, it's, it's a pain, right? There's the cost of the product and then there's the potential for resistance. And I, we talk about resistance with bacteria a lot because that's what I like to talk about, but we, we can see the same things with flies. And so that's why, you know, you asked about maybe using a lower dose as a spot treatment or why we recommend taking out the fly tags is because we think those exposures to low levels of product can actually promote resistance, whether it's bacteria or flies or weeds or whatever it is. And so we're, we're really trying to make a decision, is the benefit of using the product, i.e. killing the flies, outweigh the potential exposure to create resistance and maybe end up with a product that's no longer effective into the future. And that that's kind of the balance we're considering.
0: Yeah, great, great point, Brian, because that's where we get into if we do low dose, and you said promote resistance, and we're really selected for those populations that can thrive even with a low dose there, which means our products may be less effective next year. So I, I think that's the, because the temptation is, I don't want to get them up and i want to do something quick and easy and i want to put on what i can get on and you will see a response you'll see the flies knock back for a little bit but then what we've done is we've selected for those populations that are maybe not as susceptible and then they're that's where we get our
2: resistance they yeah their progeny then are not susceptible to it again and so we're looking at hope i mean maybe a product that no longer works in my operation at all
0: so we've talked we've talked two kinds of flies. We talked about, uh, horn flies, and we talked about stable flies and I said stable flies look like a house fly. What about face flies? Cause when we had this conversation at the start of spring or start of fly season, we talked about face flies and things like pink eye are face flies. Are they the same as stable flies or are they different?
1: All right. So a couple of things that are different. And, and Brian started talking about this as far as where do the flies spend their time and where do they reproduce? So for face flies and Horn flies, they reproduce in um, dung pats, so manure pats, all right? And even kind of, they they like green grass dung pats. They don't really like grain-fed dung pats. So there's some differences about that. And and so um, our, our control strategy for horn flies is on the cattle. Face flies, yes, they reproduce in cattle manure, But they don't spend much time on the cattle. They spend most of their time on the fence posts and other places. Stable flies spend most of their time in in buildings, face actually house flies and stable flies. So premise sprays work really well for those types of flies. Premise, you know. So if you sprayed your premises, you're probably not going to affect the horn flies at all, and you're probably not going to affect the face flies very much either. And so again, this is. Flies aren't just flies, Brian led with that. You need to talk to your veterinarian, you need to kind of identify, when you say you have a fly problem, and you, you started this with, well, I've got a stable fly problem and I've got a horn fly problem, probably gonna need two strategies there, and they're not they're not gonna be exactly the same. Face flies, we tend to lump them with horn flies in our control strategy, even though they're kind of different in their life cycle. But we're, we're gonna use the same control strategy for face flies as we are horn flies, stable flies, and house flies, different control strategy.
0: Absolutely. Great points, guys, and and good discussions on flies. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or things you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.